Let's open our Bibles together now to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. This series that we started back in September now takes us to chapter 12. And as we come into this chapter, we find a very relevant passage for us in the disruption and difficulties we're experiencing in this pandemic. Have you noticed the longer this pandemic goes on, the more we long for things to get back to normal. We, we long for this health threat to be over. We long for this economic threat to be over. We long to resume our normal interactions with the people that we love so much. We want to get back to the full living that we've enjoyed. We want to work. We want to go to weddings again. We want to go to birthday parties again. We want to go on vacations. We long for full ministry again, where we can launch missionaries, where we can join missionaries on the field with our short-term mission trips. We long for full children's ministry again. Don't you long for a one-on-one -on -one discipleship conversations over a cup of coffee in person? And don't you miss gathering together in a room for great celebrations of God and corporate worship? Oh, I can tell you as a pastor to be able to be in the same room with those that I'm preaching to that I love so much. So I miss you and we miss each other. But here we are right in the middle of this challenge. And so here's a question. Why does God allow difficulty? Here's another question. As Christians, how come he doesn't answer all of our prayers to take away our troubles? We know ultimately there are problems on the earth because of the fall, because of sin. We're living in a cursed earth until the new heaven, new earth. But, but why does God allow problems to stay in our lives? Well, one thing we know about Paul, he was an expert on problems. We saw that back in chapter 11 as he gave quite a list of his difficulties. Remember the context here. The reason he's talking about all of his difficulties is he's trying to show that he is a legitimate, real, authoritative apostle sent from Christ. He's not like the fakers that have come into the church in Corinth who are challenging Paul, who are leading people astray. Paul actually is legitimate and he wants to point to his legitimacy and he does it in an interesting way from our mindset he points over and over again to his weaknesses. He never wants to brag about himself. He wants Jesus to get all the glory for that. And so Paul points to his troubles. In fact, here's what he says here. He says in chapter 12, verse 1, boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. So in other words, to Paul, this is so distasteful. This is embarrassing to have to show his credentials, to even have to do that makes him feel like, I don't want to sound like I'm boasting, but it's necessary. It's necessary that I hold up my credentials to the false apostles that you in Corinth will know that I am the real apostle. But he camps out on his weaknesses that the strength of Christ might be on display. Now, just by way of review, back in chapter 11, verses 23 to 33, remember he gave this catalog of suffering. Among that list, he talked about how three times he was beaten with rods. And what a challenge that would be to be, to be persecuted to that extent. Five times he received 39 lashes. One time he said he was stoned and left for dead. And then three times he was shipwrecked. Many times he said he went without sleep and he mentioned danger after danger. So Paul knew great suffering in his life. He says, this is what I point to as my validation that I truly am an apostle. So understand this, when you have challenges in your life, real problems, don't think that this is evidence that God is unfaithful to you. When you have trouble, don't look at those things and say, well, that's evidence God doesn't love me. Paul doesn't do that. Paul's not embarrassed about his troubles. He says, this is my real validation that God has brought me through troubles over and over again. I'm coming through them to accomplish the purposes of God. In fact, let me talk to you about that. 
Can you think about anybody in the Bible who had it easy? Think about it. Can you think about anybody in the Bible who did not have problems? I'm, not talk, I'm talking about the good guys in the Bible. If everybody you think about who had any amount of verses written about them, they had problems. Now, you can think about Job as the classic example. But sometimes we think Job is the exception. Job, yeah, he had troubles, but maybe the rest of the people in the Bible didn't. Oh, he had troubles. He was a righteous man, and God was with him. But we can think about others. Abraham, great patriarch of the faith. He had trouble, sent by God from his homeland to go to a land that God would show him. There he had troubles. He, he and his wife Sarah had infertility all through their lives, and, and that was a great heartbreak to them until God provided miraculously their son Isaac. How about Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery, and then he was lied about and put in jail? He had sufferings, and yet right in the center of God's will. Or how about the Israelites? 400 years of slavery, and they were the chosen people of God. Or Moses, who had a difficult, difficult calling confronting Pharaoh and then also having to lead a very stubborn people. David had many troubles, many wars that he had to fight, family turmoils, his own son trying to kill him, and then self-inflicted problems because of his sin with Bathsheba. Jeremiah had a difficult calling, hated by his people, put in the stocks, thrown into a pit. People like Naomi and Ruth, who lost their husbands and had the real threat of being destitute, and yet God provided for them. Queen Esther had difficulties, a queen during a time of exile and a very dangerous time as she had to stand for her people. Nehemiah had many adversaries. John the Baptist was faithful and yet beheaded. Jesus himself, of course, left heaven for us to suffer on purpose, to ransom us from our sins, to save us. And then the apostles, of whom Paul is one, they suffered. We think about only the Apostle John who lived to an old age and even he was exiled on Patmos from where he wrote the book of Revelation. There were troubles. Just making the point, if you're struggling in your life, if you have difficulties, you're living a biblical life. Peter even talked about it. Peter who, went, who walked with Jesus, who suffered for Jesus, he said this in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So if you've struggled in your life, if you're struggling now, this is a normal life. You're not being cheated, but here's the good news. Perfection is coming. We don't experience that yet. Nobody in the Bible did, but perfection has been promised. Heaven is coming, and we look forward to it here. So God is faithful now, even in our troubles. God is making his rugged grace available to you. So Paul talks a lot about his sufferings, but now just for a moment, he's going to talk about a great revelation that God gave him. He's going to talk about it briefly. He's going to talk about it reluctantly, but he goes now to a great experience God gave him. Now into our text. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible things which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do wish, if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, 
but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. So here's Paul reluctantly now talking about a great experience he had 14 years earlier in his life. It was a magnificent experience where God gave him a vision. Paul says, I don't know whether it's in my body or out of my body, but I know this. I was taken up to the third heaven into paradise, things that I can't even express. He even says here, things I haven't been permitted to express. So, so here's God now giving Paul after 14 years the green light to talk about a dramatic revelation, a dramatic vision that he had been given. Something that had been for Paul's benefit, but now Paul is permitted to talk about it in order to show that he has a a genuine, powerful walk with the Lord like the false apostles are claiming to have. Paul genuinely had this experience. Now, I'm impressed with Paul's restraint here. I mean, can you imagine you have an, an experience with God this amazing and you keep quiet about it for 14 years? Can you imagine if you had had that experience where God gave you that privilege of having this glimpse, even gaze into heaven itself, and then being here and not bringing it up? I would think it'd be a great temptation in every conversation. Did I ever tell you about the time I saw heaven? You'd want to bring it up. Imagine if I had the experience. It'd be difficult in every sermon not to bring it up. If I did, you'd be saying, Jim, please teach us the rest of the Bible. There's so much more we need to know. But Paul, obedient to the Lord, didn't talk about it until now when it's necessary. Paul said, this is necessary, but it's not profitable. Paul would rather talk about the gospel, something that's beneficial to other people. He wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so people could go to this paradise that God allowed him to see. But he mentions it here so as he wouldn't be outmatched by the false claims of the false apostles. But even here, when he brings up this great revelation, did you notice? This is now a springboard back to talking about what he wants to talk about, and that's his weaknesses. So he goes right back to weaknesses here, and he starts talking about that famous thorn in the flesh. So let's go deeper into our text now, picking up in verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with my weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, what is this thorn? We don't know exactly what it was. Paul doesn't tell us exactly what it was. Now, that word thorn is literally translated something sharp. It could be something sharp like a stake or the point of a hook or indeed a thorn like this. And so translators typically bring it over a thorn that's in his flesh. We know this. It was painful for Paul, whatever it was. It was unpleasant for him. Paul says here it made him feel weak. He described it as something that tormented him. And it's clear he did not want it. In his prayer time with the Lord, he begged God, he says on three occasions, very intensely, he begged God to take that thorn from him. And then he tells us what God's answer was. God's answer to that request three times, God's answer was no. And let's just pause here. This teaches us something about prayer here. When we pray, this great privilege God gives us, when we pray, God does not give up his leadership. 
It's not like, well, we asked, and we asked in Jesus' name, then God has to do what we're asking. No, God remains sovereign. He remains the Lord, and we want him to be Lord in these things. And so in Paul's case, he he made this request of God right in the center of God's will, and God says, no, I'm not going to take it from you. In our prayer times, we come humbly. We cry out to God with our pain and our problems, with our complaints before him. He wants us to do that. And we ask him to do what he, what he should do, what is best for us, and we trust him. But in this case, God had a purpose for leaving the thorn that Paul didn't want in his life. God gave an answer. It wasn't that God didn't answer. He did answer. The answer was no. And mercifully, God gave more of an explanation to Paul. God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now Think about this. Paul knew the power of God. Paul had seen miracles of God, people healed through Paul's own ministry, and yet in his case, God chose to leave the thorn in place. Paul knew the power of God. He just talked about this great vision where he saw heaven, and yet here's God saying, but I'm not going to take this thorn from you. God chose not to take it, chose not to give him instant healing because God had a purpose for that thorn. The thorn was going to stay. The pain was going to stay. The weakness, the inconvenience But even with that, God affirms, my grace also is going to stay with you. My grace will be sufficient. My grace will lead to power in your life. Now, again, what was this thorn? Scholars through the years have tried to figure out what what was Paul dealing with that he would describe as a thorn in the flesh. And some people, because of other passages, say maybe it was something to do with his vision, with his eyes, some trouble he had there. It's possible. We don't know. Some say it might have been a battle with ongoing migraines. Some say it could have been something like epilepsy. Some, because Paul talked about his speech at times, think it might have been some type of speech impediment. Others have tried to guess maybe it was recurring bouts of malaria and all kinds of theories through the years, but we don't know. And aren't you kind of glad we don't know? Because now all of us can relate to this. We say, Paul, I don't know what your thorn in the flesh was. But I know what I'm going through, and this is like a thorn in my side as I go through life. And we can relate to that. Here's a question. Where did that thorn come from that Paul talks about here? That sharp object, whatever, that sharp pain in his life. What was it? Where did it come from? He calls it here, did you notice, a messenger of Satan. So Paul understood that our God, our good God, can use the things that the enemy intends for evil in our lives. God can turn around and use that for good in our lives. In fact, it reminds us of Job. In the story of Job's life, we see that Satan was permitted to do some things in his life, and yet God was over that whole process guarding Job and would would actually restore Job. But God is good at taking evil intended for us and turning it around for good. So what was the purpose of leaving this difficulty, whatever it was, in Paul's life? Paul knew exactly why God did it. And the first reason Paul said, here's why God let me continue to struggle with this, it was because of humility. The purpose of the thorn in his life was humility. Did you notice verse 7? Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Here it is again, to keep me from exalting myself. He says it twice. Here's the reason that I might stay humble that I might stay dependent upon Christ. This thorn in my flesh that I don't want, that I've begged God to take from me, it's to keep me from exalting myself. So it was to humble him. Secondly, believe it or not, it was to strengthen him. That difficulty, that source of weakness, God intended to use for Paul's strength. This is verse 8 and following. Hear this again. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that, that it might leave me, 
And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Catch this. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that, here it is again, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So God's grace is a rugged grace, and it's sufficient. God's grace is a saving grace, but it's also a sustaining grace. God's grace that we experience as his children is an empowering, and it's a strengthening grace. And so Paul came to understand this, that his ministry was better because of his weakness. One scholar put it this way, the thorn makes Paul acutely aware of his own inadequacies and prevents him from thinking that he is equal to the task alone. It prevents a bloated ego from crowding out the power of God in his life. I love what he says next. The scholar says, Paul is therefore most powerful when he is least reliant on his own resources. Did you hear that? Paul is most powerful when he's least reliant on his own resources. That's, that's a powerful word for us as well. When you think you are strong in yourself, you're never more weak than that. But when you realize, I don't have it, I'm weak, I'm depleted, I now need to rely totally on the Lord in your weakness, oh, now you are truly strong. You're tapping into strength beyond yourself. Now, by the way, that's how you're saved. When you come to Jesus, when you're genuinely becoming saved, it's when you recognize, I have nothing to offer. I'm a sinner just bringing my sin before the Lord, and I need him, all of him, to rescue me. What Jesus did on the cross is my salvation. I'm putting all of my hope and confidence in Jesus. I have nothing to bring. That's how you're saved. But if we're wise, the walk God's called us to is to continue that posture. And Lord, every day I have nothing to bring. I need all of your strength in my life. I'm completely weak. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the might, but God, you do. And so I want you to be strong in the midst of my weakness. That's how we're to live. This is how Jesus called us to live. Jesus calls this abiding in him. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 5? He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is how Paul operated. Remember what he said back in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be from God and not from ourselves. So Paul's saying, I'm weak, I'm fragile, I'm like a jar of clay, I'm nothing, but I have living in me almighty God. He is the power. He is the treasure. That's how you and I are to live our lives. Paul said this to the Colossians, Colossians 1.29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Or Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And he says this, put on the full armor of God. That's how we live out our lives. This is always to be our perspective. In our troubles, if we're thinking clearly, we'll understand the same thing. God's grace is sufficient. And when I'm weak, then I'm truly strong. If I abide in him, if I depend on him, if I walk with him, his strength will be on display. And so the power of our weakness 
is knowing where to turn for strength, and oh, we turn to the Lord. So here we live in these difficult days, and the whole world has been humbled. We can say it this way, the whole world has been weakened, but you and I know where to turn. We're not putting our hope in ourselves. We're not putting our hope in our money. We're not putting our hope in our government or in our health or in our fitness. Our strength comes from the Lord. We're looking to the ongoing rugged grace of God in our lives. So, so what's God doing in your life right now through the challenges you're facing, whether it's the pandemic or something else and, or other things in your life? What's God doing? He's doing at least two things in your life and my life during these days. First of all, he's strengthening you by his grace. And secondly, he's sanctifying you by his grace. James chapter 1 says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so God is using your trials, these trials, to strengthen you, to complete you. He's strengthening you, and he's sanctifying you. Really, that's what Paul was talking about when he said to the Romans, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Then he continues, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed, catch it, to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God is causing all things, even difficult things, to work together for good. We think, what good? Oh, he's strengthening me, and he's sanctifying me. He's working to conform me to the image of Christ. He's working to conform you to the image of Christ, to make you more like Jesus. So God's using two powerful forces in your life to make you more like Jesus. His spirit living within you, making changes in you, producing his fruit in you, and then things around you even things that we don't like. Notice how comprehensive Paul said it was in Romans 8. God causes all things to work together for good. That means the good things in our lives and the bad things that come into our lives. Pleasant things and unpleasant things. Delightful things and even tragic things. God causes all things to work together for good. That word work together in the original language means to collaborate. It's a literal compound word. These things work together. It makes me think about a recipe you know, when you're about to cook something, you have your ingredients out. Some of those ingredients you would never want to eat by themselves. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, for instance, if you have a recipe that calls for vinegar, you think that's, that's a good ingredient to go in something, but most of us don't want to drink straight vinegar or even salt. I really like salt, but I never eat a bowl of salt like it's a bowl of cereal that would be disgusting. And yet when we work it together with other ingredients, it can do some amazing things. You get things like North Carolina barbecue when you put vinegar and salt and other things all together with some other ingredients. Great things happen. And so here's, here's what the Word of God says. God's taking all things, the things we don't want, like thorns in the flesh and other things. He, he's working it together for good. He's strengthening us through these things. He's sanctifying us through these things. And so once again, I ask you, what, what's going on in your life? Let's ask first of all, what are some good things happening in your life. And I bet you could come up with quite a list, even today, of good things. You have salvation if you've put your faith in Jesus. You have the Spirit of God living in you. You have the Word of God. You have a church family, and you have friends and things like that. But, but what's going wrong in your life? You could quickly come up with what's going wrong, but here trust that God is working these things together for good. Maybe like Paul, his, his work for us is to, to make us humble, Maybe it is to weaken us that we might be truly strong as we put all of our faith and dependency upon the Lord where it belongs, 
all along. He's working to make us more like Christ. He's working to make us more useful to Christ. And so knowing that God has a plan for allowing difficulties in our lives, doesn't it steady us? Doesn't it encourage us? There's intimacy in that. There is strength in that. And when we turn and trust the Lord, we will not be disappointed. And here we return to Paul here. And didn't he model that for us? Here's a man who suffered more than any of us can imagine. And he's the one saying, all this is working together for good. Here he's saying, God has a purpose in this. He's keeping me humble. He's giving me strength that I wouldn't have had otherwise had I not been broken down this way and had this thorn in my flesh that I didn't want. And so all of us, let's do this. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Let's keep asking. Let's keep praying. But let's humble ourselves. And if you have not done so yet, come to Jesus. Humble yourself. Realize you can't save yourself. Ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior and then trust in him. Trust in his work to save you, but continue to trust him in his work to sanctify you and in his work to strengthen you. Let's pray together. God, we want to thank you for your truth here. Your, your truth steadies us that when we do encounter troubles, we don't have to think some strange, abnormal things happening to us. We know we're in great company. Everyone who's lived on this earth has struggled. But God, we thank you for the hope and promise of heaven, paradise, where we'll never struggle again. No more tears, no more pain when we're in your presence. Until then, God, thank you for this reminder that your grace is a rugged grace. It's sufficient for us. And Lord, even when we feel weak, when we throw ourselves upon you, God, we're stronger than we realize. And so, God, we pray that you'll do great things in us to make us like you, great things through us more than ever as we trust in you and call out on your name. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.